Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining the Finding Harmony podcast today. And happy Mother's Day to all the beautiful women out there who are mothers. Mothers of fur babies, mothers of human babies, and mothers of children of all ages and kinds. Neurodiverse babies. Yes, everyone. Yeah, I don't normally do this intro thing. I know, I invited you to do the intro today with me, just because it's Mother's Day and you should wish me Happy Mother's Day. Not my mother. (laughs) I know, Mm. but you're supposed to wish everybody who's a mother a Happy Mother's Day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) So we wanted to offer this really beautiful, special episode with Pranadi Varshne. Yeah, she was cool, actually. Yeah, and she's also a mother of two young children, a yoga teacher. And being a yoga teacher, especially running a Mysore program, is a little bit like being a mother when you have your own school and your own program. It's, you do a lot of uh, coaching, a lot of, uh, I say, um, helping, helping, guiding. You basically have to recreate civilization all by yourself in your house. (laughs) That's what it looks like. In a Mysore program? I mean, just as a mom. Oh, yeah. Just basically, (laughs) you're kind of on your own there. Or as a Mysore teacher. With a kid. (laughs) It's the same thing, actually. In a Mysore room, you're trying to recreate the wheel. You feel like you've got a schematic in your mind of what a wheel looks like, and you try to apply that to some poor sod from (laughs) out of town. And it's like, ugh, this is hard, harder than it looks. It is harder than it looks, actually. It's almost impossible. (laughs) Pranadi is going to talk to us a little bit about her approach to teaching Mysore, which is really beautiful and totally in line with where my heart is when it comes to teaching. And um, also some of the trials and tribulations of being a mother and running your own yoga school as well. Yeah, we had some interesting connections there. Um, She's from Detroit. Yeah, uh, we shared a lot of uh, of stories about the the Midwest and about about you know being aligned that way, and um, we were able to talk to her uh, about a couple of of interesting and gnarly political points, uh, say cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we were able to talk about uh, a little bit. We threw that in right at the end because this is kind of on everyone's mind and will be for the foreseeable future, right? Which was. Um, of course, the uh, the the uh, leaked document, uh, which was uh, Alito's majority opinion uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, which is you know of course turning most of the citizenry of the United States into second-class citizens, you know, forever. Yeah. And so we were able to talk about that a little bit, and she had some really interesting perspectives, um, which I thought were really helpful and valuable. Yeah, we talked a little bit about how. Um, my experience in the West was a little bit different from hers because mm-hmm. uh, she was living in, in kind of more urban Midwestern places like Chicago and Detroit. And I was living in, in very rural locations in uh, Illinois and, and Louisiana and um, uh, very markedly different experiences. Yeah, and that's fascinating. It's I don't... left me full of hate. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> 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 that's that's an unfortunate refrain in our home, I think, going 
going. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, Russell's full of hate again. It's not so. It's not so much like that in Canada, but I can see how in America there there's so much division and so much uh, animosity and anger and frustration about um, people on the other side of the kind of constantly having to litigate your rights and your point of view. It's sort yeah. of a, a cultural norm in the United States. Yeah, and it seems it seems very frustrating. You know, some of these issues like gay marriage or abortion rights, you know, women to have the right to choose yeah. what's going on this with is... their body, birth control, these types of things, you know, once they become accepted this is norms or rights or human rights. This is, this is settled law in Canada. <laughs> yeah, we don't like sit around and keep talking about you them and discussing them and no, you... arguing about them. Everyone just accepts and moves on. Even in uh, a cultural wasteland like Alberta, which is the white <laughs> supremacist capital of Canada. It's really not. It's far right, but it's like, it's still like everyone, it's like if, we were talking about this last night, that if, if Alberta, which would would like this, was accepted into the into the United States as a new state, <laughs> lost its provincial status in Canada, it would still be the most progressive state in the union. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> and it would, you know, the best social network, the most uh, progressive civil rights, healthcare, uh, education, healthcare, education, <laughs> the highest tax bracket. Yeah. It's so far to the left of Can of California as to be ridiculous, <laughs> and yet Albertans still think they would like to be a part of Texas. Yeah. And it's like, wow. You do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a funny dichotomy up here, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought it'd be fun to do the intro with you because I'm so boring. I never know what to say on these things, and you're always so funny. So. Well, <laughs> I um, what I'm gonna recommend to everyone is you go out and you find a friend who isn't registered to vote, some 18 year old somewhere, and you bring them, or or a 78 year old, and you bring them with you to vote. <laughs> Uh, on November 9th and you go and, and you and you get registered you check at vote.gov mm -hmm. uh, also vote.org and see if you are registered to vote uh, I was very concerned that uh, Texas might have thrown me off the voter rolls because they've been doing that to random people and I am still registered to vote I will be flying down to Texas in November to vote because um, I don't trust the mail-in absentee votes now um, for Texas anyway I think it's just fine in California, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, go f go find a friend, get and go vote. Because, yeah, take action. It's important, right? Uh, Without know, action, then you're just a victim of of circumstance. Yeah, other people's whims and. A couple weeks ago, it looked like uh, the Republicans would take back the House representatives, which would stall a lot of uh, the progress that we made in the last uh, two years. Um, but now, uh, with these draconian laws being put into place uh, and the repeal of Roe v. Wade, we're now looking at a 10-point bump. I hope so. And it looks like the Democrats, uh, to this week anyway, um, are, are 10 points up in the polls for taking back the, or keeping the House of Representatives. And it also looks like we might be able to pick up five to seven seats in the Senate, which means that... Uh, Things like Washington, D.C. might become a state. We might be able to have uh, a Supreme Court justice for every circuit court, which would make 13 That'd be better. Supreme Court justices. 
Um, we might be able to impeach a few of these fuckers. Um, <laughs> oh! All sorts of things might be might be possible if we all go out and vote in November. Yeah, well, get out there and vote. Get registered. Do you do your due diligence. Do your duty, and uh, and let's let's make the world a freer, happier place for. Or at least the United States. <laughs> yeah, the United States. I guess it. Uh, <laughs> those of you Hopefully living in Canada. Hopefully, there'll be ripple effects. Just fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and if you didn't know, Russell uh, loves politics, so uh, I don't he's. Mean... Uh... <laughs> love politics so much that I've been frustrated by them since I was a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna sign off and get on with our interview here with Pranadi, who Buttershne. is a beautiful, beautiful soul and so inspiring. You're just gonna absolutely adore this interview. She's an amazing woman. If you're in LA, be sure to look her up. Take uh, one of her classes, drop into a Mysore class. You will, I'm sure, have a wonderful, wonderful experience. Is it westcoastyoga.com? Is that what it is? West Coast LA Yoga? It's in the show notes. It's in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. How are you, you Pranadi? I'm good. We're so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. Happy to speak with both of you. You're having a little uh, res- respite from the children? Res- yeah. Respite. 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 <laughs> <laughs> she hates I mean- it. Harmony hates it when I, t- when I in any way suggest Correct different my- pronunciations. <laughs> oh, my yeah, goodness. Am I in trouble? What's correct and incorrect? You know, exactly. I have a funny- <laughs> um, it's a social so- construct pronunciation. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, it is, kind of. Yeah, um, I went to I I grew up in <clears throat> the states mostly, but I was born in India. But I still have like some words that I pronounce the way my parents pronounce them. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, I don't know that I pronounce them differently than most people until somebody tells me. Uh-huh. And yeah. the funniest, like, I have had some really funny instances where people have just been like, "What are you? What are you saying?" Like, like the word A L B E I T. Like, I I always. <laughs> Albeit. Right? Albeit. Okay. Do you know how yeah. I used to pronounce this? I'll bite. I'll bite. I'll bite. I'll bite. And for a long enough time, people said were thinking like, oh, she'll bite. Yeah, that's good. Go on. What's the reason? Because that's how I parents said it. I'll bite. I'll bite, you know? Bite. And so I just, I'll bite. But somebody that's corrected so me. And I was like, oh, I'll be it. I see. Yeah. I only just learned, I think, last year that uh, the scion of a family group is actually a skian. Oh, a oh really? Yeah, skian of a family group is like the the child of a of a ancient you know family tribe, but it's skian, and I'm like, oh, that's a horrible hmm. word. We have like we have funny words like that too. Um, when I grew up, my mom always said coupon instead of coupon. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. So I always say, I always like have to like think, how do I pronounce that word again? Because mm-hmm. my whole life, I just grew up saying coupon. An avocado. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or cauliflower. Cauliflower. <laughs> Roller coaster. <laughs> well, in Canada, so Harmony, are you originally from Canada? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's little differences between there's Canada be- and the States and Box in India, good. right? The same thing. There's so many dialectical differences. Yeah. Things are pronounced so differently. And even my my kids, they both have Sanskrit names. 
Yeah. But the way we say them at home is different than the way people pronounce them outside. And mm-hmm. my daughter is like very, from a young age has, age, has been really like linguistically, it, it sounds like snobby to say your kid is gifted, but like she's really been really yeah. quick to pick up linguistic um, mm-hmm. things. Like her, she talked really early. She's really picks up vocabulary very well. And she knows the difference of how people outside pronounce her name and how we pronounce her name. Yeah. And now she has a little brother. And so she is really interesting to watch her kind of toggle between what she calls her brother because okay. she will pronounce his name one way at home and then outside she will pronounce it a different way. It's really interesting. What's what's her name and what's his name? So her name, her full name is Savishi, which in Sanskrit means courage, but we call her Savi. And Tali. outside people call her Tavi. Oh, Tali. Tali, Tavi. Tavi, Tavi, Tavi. Oh, Tavi. Yeah, yeah. Tavi and Tavi at home. And then her brother's name is Vihan. V-I-H-A-A-N. So at home we say Vihan and outside people say Vihan. Yeah. There's very (laughs) subtle differences, but it's really, she's only four, but she picks up on these differences. And so she'll like kind of go between the two. Yeah. I I can see her working that out in her head. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's like putting the, the emphasis on it, the, whether it's like a long A or a short A, right? Exactly. And so you're and pronouncing it with the correct, <laughs> yeah, the correct, <laughs> you know, I mean, Sanskrit pronunciation. <laughs> exactly. And this is what we're talking about in yoga often too, right? With Sanskrit. I think people can get yeah. like pretty dogmatic sometimes about you yes. must pronounce it the correct way. And yes, like we want to put intention into pronouncing yeah. it correctly, but also words flow out of our mouths with the decades of conditioning that we've had. And yeah. so... It's, Even the difference um, between North and South India, like asana absolutely. or asana. And yes, you know, who absolutely. is correct at that point? Well, mm-hmm. the Sanskritists in the South are obviously correct. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were not uh, corrupted by the Mughal influence of Persia. Where were you born? I was going to say, I'm from the North, so I've been doing it all wrong. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No but actually, you're from you're from Michigan. I was so excited to find that out. I am from Michigan. Yes. So, what I, part of the hand are you from? Um, I'm from uh, Metro Detroit area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was. Know, we're I, we're yeah. in a podcast, so there's no yeah, point you in can't see the, to the hand, but... right at the crux of the thumb. I uh, I was I was born in Pontiac. And, oh yeah! Uh, my whole family oh, yeah. was there, and um, they um, they were actually uh, a lot of them uh, were originally Jews, the Kaufmans, who mm-hmm. moved there to help build the Detroit Tunnel, and they oh, couldn't cool. get a job in Detroit, so they had to change their name to Chapman, mm. which sounded very wow. British, very British, you know, and <laughs> and so, was really, so they were doing that to to get work, and. Uh, I thought it. I thought it was interesting. Um, those kind of parallels of what a what a, a group, what a tribe, what a, what do people have to do yeah. to try and make their way in the new world in this you know, especially an incredibly racist new world <laughs> like America. Yeah, yeah. What brought your parents over from India to Michigan? Opportunity. Yeah, the classic immigrant story, which is, you know, you leave the home country for the promise of a better life. Um, And uh, yeah, I think I think back and, you know, my life would have been very radically different if my parents hadn't moved here. I moved here when I was six. Um, 
and it was difficult for them at the beginning for sure Mm -hmm. um they were you know uh in you know they were on a on a career path over there and then to to transplant your whole life and have to start over yeah very difficult what what were they doing in india before they moved uh both in the professional fields my dad is an engineer my mom is a scientist uh, pharmaceutical scientist and and they came here and started from scratch and there's just some crazy stories you know about how they handled the the transition like my dad came first and so my mom was there in India with both kids on her own yeah she had some help from family and stuff like that but still you know on her on her own and then and then flying us across the ocean on her own and setting us up and then her finding work and dealing with all the cultural differences that immigrants have Mm -hmm. to deal with yeah was she able to find the same kind of work Yes, they both are, are, you know, for the, for the entirety of their careers have been working in their fields mm-hmm. and they're That's both great. nearing retirement now, which is such a, it's a cool, just a <laughs> cool to, thing to think about them transitioning into this whole new phase of their life. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to just take on like full-time grandparent status. They're already amazing grandparents, <laughs> yeah. but I hope like once they retire, they just spend more and more time here. <laughs> yeah, that's a gr- that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I'll, I'll hope for that for you too. <laughs> yeah. When my when my family moved from uh, from Michigan down to Louisiana, there're all all sorts of issues for me personally having very different culture mm-hmm. and also being a Jew um yeah. and visible minority uh mm-hmm. to those crackers um <laughs> i'm obviously jewish to some other people but you know to, to those people down there they didn't know idea and uh it was there's all sorts of 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 issues for me personally trying to to adjust to to living in the south and and being mm-hmm. and being different you know yeah. being uh uh culturally liberal for example was mm-hmm. you know for they called me uh fishman as a nickname hmm. because i believed in evolution <laughs> Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he's a weirdo, you know. But um, I, I quickly found my, my social group. And, and one of the, the, the groups of people that I, that I found, um, you know, most um, respite with were this with Marathi family living in mm. Slidell, Louisiana, uh, the Gopanaths, um, who, were, who were originally from Mumbai. Uh, so the, the brothers, Samanth and Shmin, were my best friends. Even though you know we we had a lot of cultural issues that they would forgive, you know I was I was not civilized, and they kind of <laughs> made allowances for that. But I you know yeah. I I loved being in their home. I loved eating uh, their food, and and uh, I learned a lot about cooking from their mother, yeah. uh, who was also my algebra teacher at school. Oh wow. And it, it was sort of it was sort of fascinating that we were both we were we were friends because we were both interested in the in the classical arts. You know, I was interested in classical painting. They were interested in classical music. We formed a little band together, which was a kind of a, <laughs> a, a weird um, uh, Caribbean punk band, <laughs> sort of bizarre. But we were kind of going in different directions, I think, because uh, I was going more punk and they were going kind of more more classical and. It, I just it was it was interesting to me to think about um uh maybe cultural appropriation which is something that you'd mentioned in your in your in your yeah. the the questionnaire to me because they you know they're picking up um 
uh, classical music. Yeah, uh, ethno, you know, European nineteenth <clears throat> century uh, European norms. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm I was picking up a, a lot of, you know, for me very interesting details about Indian society that I took with yeah. me the rest of my life. And so we're kind of going in different directions, and I, I probably know well, a lot more yeah. about Patanjali than they do. They know a lot yeah, more about Yeah, so this is really interesting. Right? Was that was that your first introduction to an Indian family? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I, so that was your first introduction to Indian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a piece that I often think is missing in the cultural appropriation conversation is that what you experience is like an immersion into Indian culture, at least from my perspective, that's an immersion into Indian culture, perhaps Indian American culture since they had immigrated to the States. Um, but most uh, immigrant families that I know keep, keep, do maintain quite a bit of Indian culture within the home. Mm-hmm. And yet often in the public context when we're talking about cultural appropriation, what I see is not really talk about Indian culture, it's talk about Indian texts, Indian history, Indian mm-hmm. philosophy, all these other things, um, which absolutely we need to talk about and we need to make sure we're honoring the authenticity of yoga's roots. But I don't know, I feel like the term cultural appropriation is sort of a, a misnomer because I know many, many people who are learned in in the text, but who are not so steeped in Indian culture in the way that you got to be, um, mm-hmm. you know, with this family. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, because Indian culture is this like, it's, it's not just what's presented in yoga philosophy or, or the Bhagavad Gita or the sutras or whatever. Culture is this much, it's, it's the lived experience of mm. being an Indian yeah. person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and it has all its little intricacies, like any other culture does. Um, Indians, you know, want their kids to get into stable careers, and they want <laughs> yeah. to marry them off, and they want yeah, to yeah. have a bunch of babies. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's what Indian people want for their families. That's, I can't, you know, of course, not every Indian family, but the vast majority, yes, that's what they want. <laughs> Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, it's not a good or bad, but this is part of Indian culture. The cooking, this is part yeah. of Indian culture. You know, the clothes, the language. This is a very rich culture, um, and yeah, I just feel that that piece that piece is is missing in the conversation because it doesn't mean that I don't know. I, I feel like we're living in we're living in a society in a time right now where everyone is really afraid to do or say the wrong thing, or they're going to mm. get like you know just totally pounced on, canceled, yes, exactly. Mm. So you want to make sure you're not like appropriating anything, like, like, my God, like, you know, can't wear a sari. Like there was a whole scandal because the most recent Sex in the City, I don't know if you heard about this, like the most recent, the reboot reboot of Sex in the City. Right. She wore like a langa, and instead of calling it a langa, she called it a sari, and it was like this huge deal. And oh, I was like, come oh, on, people. Like, yeah. this is not cultural appropriation. Can we just like calm down a little bit? Like, how yeah. wonderful that we, there, there was like a 30 minute episode, or however long it was, dedicated to showcasing some of the beautiful Indian clothes right. that, you know, come from our culture. 
can yeah. we focus on that? And and there were Indian people present in the episode, Indian actresses. It was not yeah. like just white people masquerading with <laughs> a beauty pageant, you know? I thought it was actually done with a lot of respect. But afterward, there was so much backlash online. I mean, just, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like, what kind of a world are we living in? We just want to tear people down all the time. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's, I think you bring up such an important point, too, that <laughs> I think, you know, part of it's how we're focused, right? And if you're just focused on like what everyone's doing wrong or on, you know, being offended, you can be offended mm-hmm. easily at everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then it goes but, back to the pronunciation thing we were talking yeah, about at the beginning, right? right? To yeah. pronounce something incorrectly, yeah, you can you can be really offended and be like, well, you didn't sit at home and practice your Sanskrit for long enough, you know? Yeah. Or you can sort of um, be you know, appreciative of the fact that somebody is trying. Yes. Yeah. And, and if we are really honestly trying to change something, and I'm not, I'm not saying all this and, and sort of negating discrimination and appropriation that does happen, sort of capitalizing yeah. on somebody else's culture and then, and then, you know, calling it your own or, or being very greedy about stuff, all that stuff does mm-hmm. happen. But if we want to instill change, I think, behavioral psychologists would agree the way to instill change is usually through positive reinforcement it's not by saying you're a bad person you know yeah yeah, yeah. and you we, didn't do it right yeah this we watched yeah. this uh last episode of atlanta and it was it was fascinating um the, one of the characters in the show who is nigerian american oh. uh took his 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 um his handler who was a white girl. An English girl. They were in England. And he took her to a Nigerian restaurant just to kind of, because he wanted. He wanted mm-hmm. Nigerian food and, and he heard she, there was a really good Nigerian And the handler was going to pay for everything. Yeah. So, you know, he took her there and he went back there some indeterminate time later and she had bought the restaurant, fired the <laughs> owner and opened oh. up a Nigerian food truck on the street. And she oh. was running the Nigerian food truck. And I think, yeah, that's an example so of cultural saying, yes. appropriation. <laughs> that's cultural appropriation. Yeah, definitely. That was, that was really good. Yeah. It was yeah. Uh, but, sad and good all but, at the same time. Before we go too much further, we should introduce you because we jumped right in and I'm, and I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. And so please, <laughs> please like a, correct a me. in your podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so like half, halfway in. Yeah, that's right. with, with Eddie, for example. Yeah. So just to please correct me if I, if I mispronounce. Um, Pranidhi Varshne is correct. the founder of Yoga Shala West, a community-supported Ashtanga yoga studio in West Los Angeles, if that's still correct. Mm-hmm. She's the mother to two children, who she describes as courageous and wise little things. <laughs> the thread that runs through all her work is the desire to build community and live from the heart. And I, I think that's just a lovely introduction. Is that all still current? Yeah, that all, that all still tracks. Yeah. <laughs> that feels true. Yeah. I I had a question for oh, do you have do you have something harmful? Well, Sorry. I wanted to hear about about your parents, why they named I, you. I have that on the question the list. Oh, that's a good question. Though. Oh Let's yeah. Start with that. So, I mean, yeah, I you know, I never asked them why they named me that, but I have often um asked them about the meaning of my name and it's really interesting. Before I started practicing yoga, I understood the meaning of my name to be prayer, which is what my mom has always told me. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's that's just always what I knew. And then I started 
practicing yoga, studying a little bit more about the theory, and I came across the word pranidhana, and I was like, oh yes, this is where my name comes from. Yeah, surrender, devotion, which I mean, really, also prayer. Yeah, yes, totally. Not that different. It's not that different. Yeah. So now I understand that to be the origin, the root word. It's um, beautiful. My name. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so your parents mm-hmm. wanted you to be an engineer. No, they wanted me to be a doctor. A, a doctor, doctor. yeah, that's doctor. Good, They wanted me to be a doctor, yes. yeah. It was a yeah. very traumatic for them when I chose not to be. My, uh, my friend Samanth was, um, was supposed to be an engineer, and he got an, a, a, an engineering degree at the University of Texas, and then mm-hmm. finally escaped and became a professional musician and is now a professor really? of music at the University of Texas. Oh, Minnesota. wow. But his younger brother, Shimin, also got a chemical engineering degree at University of Texas. He is now a psychiatrist, and he is oh, not wow. the professional bass musician that he wanted to be, <laughs> unfortunately, for him. Maybe there's something about the younger sibling, because my, you know, my younger sister is also... Um, She's a pharmacist now. She oh, works at, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in clinical pharmacy. So yes, she's very yeah. much a good girl in that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, but you were in the in the arts, is that right? You had developed an yeah, interest. Yeah, I was sort of forging my own path from a young age. Which, you know, going back to something I said earlier, I don't know if I would have been able to if we'd stayed in India, but we came here, so I had all these options available to me. And yes, I I went into into the arts, I used to sing, and then I went into acting and pursued both those things for some time. And then, you know, yoga crept into my life. And then I was at a crossroads and I chose the, the, the yoga. yoga. Okay. Yeah. Is that what brought you to I, LA? Were you like no, following I, I a wanted, career path as an actress? Following the sun and the ocean when I came to LA. Uh, um, yeah. This is yes, a bit different from like, Detroit. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, well, and I and I was in Chicago after that. I, from Detroit, I went to Chicago. I stayed mm-hmm. there for several years, and then I came to LA. Were you it like was, in I, Second City in Chicago? Were you looking at? No, and I was. I went to school at Northwestern, and then oh, I yeah. was working in the industry there um, for a couple of years after graduating. And I got cast in a touring show, and so I was touring. And then after the tour was over, I was like, I don't want to go back to Chicago. So then oh. I just came. What, uh, <laughs> uh, what year were you in Chicago? What I years? was so I started my undergraduate in 2002, and I was okay. there till 2006 at Northwestern, and then I moved uh, okay. to LA in 2009. Yeah. Okay. I was I mm-hmm. was there. Uh, I just finished school at the Art Institute of Chicago in 2001. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, my second go around, and uh, then left just just then. So you uh, know, Midwest you. really holds a a special place in my heart. I don't know if you feel the same way. Because I don't know, the people in the Midwest, just so kind, in, in my experience. Huh. I found them incredibly racist, but that's fine. <laughs> really? No, that's good, yeah. That they have big hearts. Huh. huh. No, um, my experience with <laughs> Illinois is that I lived in like 10 different incredibly small towns that mm-hmm. any any hint, any sniff mm-hmm. of difference was gonna get you fucking killed or at least um wow. made fun of. Wow. And wow. um I, you know, my nose was too big, my hair was too curly, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. thoughts were too liberal. 
it was right. an unending, uh, unending um, uh, torrent, torrent of bigotry <laughs> towards wow. someone who's I'm an invisible minority who's not obviously brown or black, <laughs> right, right, you know, right. and. Um, yeah, that's the like when I, you know, I look at a fucking map of Indiana and it's bright red. It's because mm-hmm. it doesn't have Chicago in it. You know, I, you know it's like, yeah, yeah, that's why yeah. it's bright red. Well, so the rest of Illinois yeah. is bright red as well. And it's, yeah. So when yeah, I, and in that way, you know, I've had a very specific experience that I've been in mostly urban settings. Right. My whole life. It's just what I think Michigan what we're, is the same is, urban divide. Michigan is bright red without Detroit and without Ann Arbor. And so like, if you don't live in the city in the United States, uh, good luck, you know, (laughs) because if you didn't, if you weren't born there or raised there, if you look slightly different at all, they don't want you there. Is my experience. experience, I wonder if things have changed now. I, you know, I have a lot of, I have compassion in a different way than I did a couple of years ago for my uh, red, Red for my red friends. My red friends. Your this is a bad joke, but you're like your native friends. Are you? <laughs> um, no, I, I really, you know, I mean, oh, gosh, like how many people, like how many podcasts out there going to talk about the red blue divide? Like that's just like mm. a thing to talk about these days, like how politically divided we are. But yeah. I've had this weird experience during COVID where. Uh, my blinders have been taken off in terms of my, my progressive blinders have been taken off. I used to consider myself like on the progressive left. And then like COVID happened and I was like, whoa, like maybe there's a lot here that I'm not seeing. And, uh, and so I, I find myself politically speaking, moving to the center and having much more compassion for my red friends. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, you know, so much, so many, so many of our our conflicts, I think, can really be, I don't know, if we were just in dialogue rather than in conflict or, like, rather yeah. than debating, we were trying to, like, listen and, like, feel each other's hearts and, like, understand yeah. sort of where people are in the world and like what their pain is or what their fear is. I feel like so much of people's opinions are, are being pushed forward because of fear or because of pain or because of, you know, all these things. And um, yeah. And COVID was an interesting experience in that, you know, we're, we're all sort of in the same collective traumatic sort of events unfolding. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you Um, would think, right. But I think, I think the reality of a lot of people's experience was shaped by their political tribe. Yes. Really interesting. And not just on the right, on the left as well, yes. you know, totally. on the left, we like to say, follow the science, follow the science. But as the science, the science is not static. Science yeah. evolves. And as the science evolves, my perception was that those on the left who were really committed, you know, to being a particular mm-hmm. way were very reluctant to, Go ahead and move with the science as the science moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and there, I, I felt on the left too, a lot of leading from fear and anxiety. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, you know, I'm, not a, I'm not an anti-COVID person, but, but yeah. the, I, I do think that the, how we experienced the last two years was very much determined by the information that was 
that we got. And Filtered. I think different, yeah. different uh, groups of people got different information. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's really bizarre, right? When you could see that, like, like these people are getting this, <laughs> like, where are you getting this? I remember I, we would yeah. ask my mom that all the time. She'd send us this stuff and we're like, where are you getting this from? Yeah. Like right. videos and like news articles yeah. and things that yeah. like look real. And you're like, mm-hmm. this is completely like fabricated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and online, right? We can all, yeah, Sorry, everyone can have an opinion. Well, well I, I was just going to say that if we think of, of, think of it as the way that people behave and is is an is an normative way and you can take any group of people say a group of punks in in a flat in london or in a squat in london or you take a group of of uh, yoga teachers living in in uh, bungalows in in gokulam they -hmm. will develop norms of behavior that you must obey Mm -hmm. or you will be cast out in any yeah. group, in any sure. situation, in any part of the world, you're not punk enough. Or you're not authentically right, Ashtangi, right. Um, yeah. or you're not true. You're not from Athens, Georgia. You're not from here. Mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. behaving the right mm-hmm. way. And I think that's just the way people yes. do things. That's how yeah. humans organize themselves. Yeah. 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 And the, I, it's interesting. I think you make a great point about the filtering of information. Like, yeah. the, what information are you getting? And that's going to inform the kind of thoughts that you have, because we have the mm-hmm. thoughts that are right in front that that are written right in front of us. Right, right. And then, and then taking it one step deeper, like you were mentioning harmony. Then, and then, what are the emotional and the physical feelings that arise as a result of our thoughts and the information mm-hmm. that's coming in? You know, that's what and yoga practice. I think that's one thing that we're learning is to try to feel what those feelings are, emotions, yeah. physical sensations, what are all these things? And then how are they influencing our behavior? Um, and I think that the more and more time we spend online, the less and less connected we are to our bodies mm-hmm. and each other, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, I think, I think the past few years were like this weird, perfect storm, weird, catastrophic storm you know where where we where we are getting more and more disconnected most of us from our bodies and from each other and so that only amplifies the disconnection more broadly across society yeah Yeah. can you talk more about your your sense of sympathy and being in the and wanting to be more towards the center like how do you mean that and what do you what Um, kind of thoughts are you you referring to um I was speaking about how come my, my blinders were kind of taken off. I think, you know, we were talking about sort of these tribal identities, right? Mm-hmm. I think we all have a tendency to to hold on to these tribal identities. And for some, for some time, I was holding on to this vision of myself as a progressive. Um, and then over the last two years, I have seen that, hey, like, you know, those other people in my tribe are behaving in ways that I don't really see as very rational. So I'll mm. just use, my goodness, I'm going to be labeled an anti-masker now, you know, but okay, <laughs> I'll just use masks as an example. Yeah. <laughs> so when we didn't know the science, or the science wasn't clear, let's say, about whether to use masks or not at the beginning, we thought, okay, well, let's be on the side of caution. Let's use the mask. Let's, let's use them, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Let's use them. And then the vaccines came out. 
everybody who wants a vaccine can get one. And somehow still, it's been a year plus into the pandemic. And those on the left are still saying, wear your mask, wear your mask, wear your mask. Right. Data is coming out that's saying, actually, cloth masks don't work very well, particularly for children. Like the mm -hmm. WHO doesn't even recommend masking kids, you know, under, I think, six or something. Mm -hmm. Masking in schools is something that's like only happening in a couple countries in the entire world. And somehow people on the progressive left are, are, are thinking what, like that every other country in the world wants to kill their kids? Like, it's not like these things like don't, they don't make sense. Right. Like, they don't make yeah. sense. And so I, I, like, I'm watching this happen. And I'm like, I think, I don't think I'm the one that's crazy. So what's going on? Mm. You know, what's going on? Yeah. And so then I started getting my information from different sources, you know, mm -hmm. respectable sources, doctors, and stuff, but people who are from reputable institutions, but are, yeah. that are actually that are circumventing the traditional media outlets and putting stuff out there on their own via podcast mm -hmm. or Substack or whatever. TikTok, yeah. Or Twitter, you know. So yeah. Social media is also a gift, you know. It can be yeah. a gift and a curse as well. Um, but yeah, I started to have a more uh, complete, I think, picture of, of the information and started to see that, hey, maybe people on the right who um, who think something different from me aren't just, you know, without consideration, just wrong or crazy yeah. or, you know, off the wall. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, there, that exists as well on the right, <laughs> right? The extremes, the extremes exist on both poles. And unfortunately, because we spend so much time online, the extremes tend to guide the conversation. But in reality, I think there is this huge group of people that exists between the extremes yeah. that are just trying to figure it out and just trying to live life. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, totally. like just trying to live life. And it goes back to yoga practice. Like most yoga practitioners are just trying to practice yoga and get on with their day. They do not <laughs> care if they pronounce the thing correctly. They don't <laughs> care if they're, you know, getting into Supta Kumasana. Like yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're just trying to practice. You're trying to feel better. And you're trying to get on with the other responsibilities you have to attend to throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a like refreshing perspective because I think it's so true, especially, you know, when you have family or like another job yeah. that isn't revolving around yoga or, you know, you right. realize like, right. like this practice is supposed to help my life. It's supposed to <laughs> give me energy to do the other things. Yeah. It's supposed to you make know, me more really patient funny. with my kids and not like cranky right. at 4 p.m. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And this is like a huge, it's, it's very strange that this isn't the perspective with which most Ashtanga yoga teachers teach. Or maybe it is, but again, publicly, we kind of hold to this like other image. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the reality on the ground is that most people are trying, most teachers even perhaps, are trying mm -hmm. to just, you know, uh, give their students some tools so that they yeah. can live better i really appreciate um, the, that you say that because uh, i'm i'm often prone to hyperbole and superlatives and i'll say you know all you know everyone's doing this and then right. and, but statistically we're really it's really difficult to be sure of what anyone is doing <laughs> you know so i really appreciate that you, that you yeah. say that uh, another thing that i i thought that you that you mentioned in your bio that i thought was fascinating was um this quote 
that uh, we don't hear a lot about the practical lens through which most Indians or Indian Americans view yoga. And oh, I, yeah. I wonder oh if you God. could talk about that at all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, the first time I went to Mysore was in 2010. Actually, the first and only time I went to Mysore was in 2010. And um, so, I, of course, I'm from India. So I was like trying to figure out where to stay. And I happened, my dad happened to know somebody in Mysore. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, so my daughter or something, his niece or some, something, my dad's friend, some, some relation, some friend's some relation. relative. <laughs> yeah, some friend's relative, younger female relative, um, was living in my in a flat. And I was like, oh, cool. So can I just like stay with her? Like, and so it was like, uh, she was she was in this flat with a couple of the girls and I just stay with them. So I was staying with local Indians, mm-hmm. uh, maybe like a 10, 15 minute uh, walk from the Shala. This was when oh, the nice. Shala was. Shala. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Gokulam. In Gokulam. Um, um, That's a and great find. Yeah, it was, it was, it was super cool. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was, and I, I'm so glad because it was not a, with like all the Western yogis. It was yeah. a little bit away and, and it was with, with the locals. And I remember them like being like, oh, so, you know, why are you here and stuff? And I was like, oh, I'm here to practice yoga. And they were just like, really? Like, like you came all the way to India to like, just like practice yoga. I was like, yeah, this is what people do. <laughs> and they were like shocked. They were like, we go to the gym. Like, it's not a big deal. Yoga, I would have to say for the vast majority of Indian people, yoga is really not a big deal. They do like some, some morning stretches, usually with somebody on the TV guiding them. Yeah. And... And that's it. And then they'll maybe if they have a puja room or something, they'll do some chanting. They'll do some, you know, some mm-hmm. prayer. And that's their yoga. And then they're done. And this this thing of like, you know, which is do like this 90-minute practice, pranayama afterward, meditation two hours a day. And then and then what? Like, what's the rest of your life? Like, that that is a monk's life, you know? That is a monk's mm-hmm. life. And and I, and the, I think the vast majority of Indian folks are not living amongst life they're they're yeah. living they're living their regular lives um and it kind of goes back to the cultural appropriation thing too like you know most most indian people if we're, if we're trying to be like i don't know if we're trying to be authentic to indian culture i i think you know it's interesting maybe this is a bit of a tangent but for me personally when people ask me if like oh do you think that's appropriative or you think that that you know it's like gives you an icky feeling the only thing that gives me an icky feeling in terms of cultural appropriation is when someone is trying to be something that they're not Mm -hmm. you know that that is what gives me that icky feeling when someone is not living authentically when someone's like taking on a name or like a an identity kind of like putting it on like a like clothing you know mm-hmm. and then walking yeah. like being this other person outside the yoga shala and then walking into the yoga shala with the beads and the incense and the murtis <laughs> and everything and then starting to speak in an indian accent like what is that about that that is so strange you know that's a pretty weird yeah but if you just walk into the yoga shala and your harmony yeah and you've spent decades visiting india and so you know whatever like and you're just yourself and you're doing your best. What is the, I don't find that to be cultural appropriation. No. Yeah, but Harmony does say the same thing about me when I put on a yarmulke. Just like, Jesus Christ. 
I've never seen you put on a yamaka. I have one upstairs, and it's not a yamaka. God damn it! It's a yamaka. You're saying it wrong, Harmony. I know. Say everything wrong. I'm so self-conscious about pronunciation. But I, you know, at the same time, I, I think you know any kind of identity, and I, I feel this particularly in an acute way, given that I'm not that. I traveled so much as a kid and I, and I Mm -hmm. struggled to find a sense of place is that any kind of identity is appropriated. You know, if I say that I'm, I'm going to be part of a a punk community, if I'm going to be a part of the Shtanga community, if I'm going to be part of the Jewish community, it's because I'm choosing to put it on. Cause it's, it's, we we all do that. We have these little cells Mm -hmm. that, you know, we have all these little cells that live inside of us. And so we (laughs) choose which self, which, group of people gets to see that's just part of being human yeah Yeah, and it's interesting like you bring up you know like spending that time in india and being educated you know by indian people Mm -hmm. in india you know about indian philosophy or yoga you're going to kind of take on some of those qualities some of those yeah um, some of that juice, some of that essence. You yeah. Know? And it's the yeah, same yeah, like yeah. when you go to school in America, you take on some of those qualities of, of your teachers and how they're educating yeah. you. And, and yeah. I think, you know, there's they say that our personalities are we're most like the the five people that we spend the most time with. Right. Right. And so right. it's it's interesting because when you kind of look around, you know, the people that you're spending the time with you know, we have mirror neurons. We start to yeah, act like yeah, them yeah, and yeah. speak like them and, and yeah. become like them. And yeah. they're doing the right. same with us. Mm-hmm. And so we're having that, like, that experience sort of of creating that little pod or creating that little right. culture. And yeah. and I think it's just a part of being human, right? That, that yeah. we tend to do that when we're in that place of connecting to whatever group it is or whatever group right. of, of people it they you know we're yeah. connected to but i i love that you say you know that like it has to also be authentic right like right and i think that's a, for me it's like about the integration so yes yeah. if you've spent if you know you've spent this time in a culture that's perhaps different from the one you were born into you know if you spend enough time there that it's really gotten integrated like you know into mm-hmm. your sense of self into your way of being then yes it doesn't feel forced Mm-hmm. You know, the issue is when, when it does feel forced and yeah. then you're sort contrived, of, yeah. and then, then, yeah, contrived. And then also the, the second piece or another piece, which is that on top of that, if you're using that as a marketing tool yeah. to like bring in the big buck, yeah. then that becomes an issue. That's like the Nigerian food truck run by white. Yeah. Or you're taking, yeah. That's the big, you know, I think often, like, example. yeah, I think often too, even of like the mindfulness movement in um, the States, right. That basically like took everything from Buddhist philosophy mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even yoga philosophy, like Indian philosophy yeah. and like cribbed it all and, turned it it into like mindfulness and now everyone practices mindfulness and mindfulness mindfulness is okay (laughs) but really this is just buddhism repackaged buddhism that they got for free (laughs) i mean maybe maybe they paid for it but still it's to me that's kind of like cultural appropriation in a weird way that hasn't really yeah, been no, called out so much or brought to the yeah. forefront because now we just all accept, oh, there's this thing called mindfulness well, and it's actually Buddhism. To be fair, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that's John Kabat-Zinn, who is a sincere practitioner of Goenkaji Vipassana, 
trying mm-hmm. to sell it to... I don't to, think he was a going Yes, he was. Uh, he's trying to sell it to uh, Boston hospitals. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a way that you can market something that is successful yeah, and not yeah, and using Sanskrit. <laughs> no, and that's right. interesting and too, right? Like how to, yeah, yeah, how to make things yeah, accessible yeah. for people that are afraid right. of, yeah. of And foreign. I actually don't think there, I don't think there's something inherently wrong with that. Sometimes we have to strip things down quite a bit mm-hmm. to make them accessible. And you never know when somebody or why somebody, you know, lands on something. And if it is accessible enough for them in that moment, they yeah. may say, hey, like, I'm doing these, you know, these postures called triangle and side angle and wheel. Mm-hmm. And I feel really good after I do this. So what is this actually? Mm-hmm. And they go, totally. oh, it's not just stretching. It's yoga. Oh, what is yoga? Let me go take a yoga class. Oh, what is this yoga? Oh, this is something called the primary series. Where did that come from? Oh, this is Ashtanga yoga. Oh, I mean, you know, it just <laughs> feels like it yes. can go like that. Yeah, and totally. What's wrong with that? Um, yeah, I mean, there are things. There are things that are wrong with you know. <laughs> there are also there are also these beautiful opportunities for deepening. Yeah, and I think that's also like how, I mean, that's how I really started practicing yoga asana was, was like that way, right? It wasn't going to, you know, Sanskrit counted class. It was like a very Mm -hmm. easy gateway drug. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Modern kind of class, (laughs) I guess. North Americanized. Can we ask you how, how this happened to you that you're a professional actor coming out of Northwestern, you're doing tour work and then you you go to california yeah. for the weather mm-hmm. and now you're a professional yoga teacher like how did it land yeah, for you it's, it's bizarre i mean i started practicing ashtanga yoga when i was in chicago and then i came to la and as every actress in la does i started taking yoga teacher training yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's a cultural normative <laughs> behavior is what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so that, yeah, that was like in 2009. And, um, and I kind of, you know, did both for a while. I was practicing, I was pursuing my career in acting. I was teaching a little bit. And then um, a few years in, I started, you know, the yoga practice gives us this ability, I think, to tune into what's really going on and these little seeds kicks from within, as is said in some traditions, you know, these little, um, just like little sensations our body gives us, the little thoughts that come up and we start to become aware of them. And I was starting to notice that every time like my agent would call me, I would like not want to pick up the phone or wow. I would, you know, like I just, I would like not want to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And so at some point I was like, maybe I should listen to that. You know, maybe, maybe this isn't working for me anymore. This, kind of this trying to pursue both and so then I was at a fork in the road and and I chose yoga and uh, I'm really happy that I did because and I, I know I made the right choice for myself in that moment because I didn't regret I didn't have regret about mm. letting that side go even though the arts were a huge part of my life for a really 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 long time yeah. um, but I but I let but I let it go and I didn't feel bad about it and um, I don't remember exactly what year that was. I think it was after I got married, maybe in 2014 or something, something mm-hmm. like that. And then by 2015, my salon was open. 
So it just, it just happened like very quickly after I made the decision. I felt very clear on my path forward. I felt very clear about the type of space I wanted to create and I had the means to do it. And so I just did it. Well, Amazing. Yeah. And you talked about a relationship with, with Manju and Nancy Gilgoff. Were they, were they part of informing your way of teaching or, or was there? Oh, yeah. Who was yeah, teaching? Sure. Yeah. So Manju, Manju has, has been my main teacher. Uh, Manju I met in Chicago, actually. Uh, and then he, he travels a lot. His home base is actually in Southern California, San Diego area, yeah. but he travels Carl's a lot. Yeah. So uh, I would see him in Chicago whenever he would come, and then I would try to catch him somewhere in the world, like once or twice a year. Was that at Suda's place in Chicago? Yeah, it was at Suda's place. Yeah, yeah and exactly. And you mm-hmm. yoga center? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys have the yeah, same yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. first he yoga is my, teacher. He is my root guru. Root guru. Oh, <laughs> oh, Suda is my root guru. That's really cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I don't know him well, but he's in really, it really seems like well, a really nice guy. He doesn't talk. <laughs> you know, yeah. So if he talked, you'd get to know him. Yeah. <laughs> what was it about Manju that like it sounds like you had like an immediate connection? To oh, him? we did. Yes. He was like my yoga dad from the beginning. Yeah. Or maybe more like my yoga grandpa. I don't know. He calls me his daughter. Um, mm-hmm. He called me. I haven't seen him in many years, actually. Since I have my own kids, it's like become yeah, very difficult so to yeah. travel anywhere. Um, but, but yeah, I just, uh, it was like a sort of instant, um, uh, bond that I, I, I think mostly, you know, it sounds silly. It's not silly. It sounds, um, simple, but it was cause he was happy. Mm-hmm. It's cause he had a smile on his face and he laughed while he was teaching Yeah, and yoga was fun. It was, yeah. it was fun. And he taught in a way that was super, um, liberated. Like, uh, he didn't hold people back. He, you know, if I would, if I would like ask him, can I do more? He'd be like, yeah, like do more. Like what, why are you asking me? Do more, you know, <laughs> what do you want to do? Go, go look at that poster. Those are the asanas coming up. Do them. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. He was like, oh yeah, do them. Um, and his, and his adjustments are amazing um he's like this little tiny man he's shorter than me but he has the strength of a lion it's mm-hmm. incredible mm-hmm. um but yeah more than anything it was that um and his humility and as i got more serious about the practice i started taking trainings with him and i just really appreciated his approach when people asked him what makes a good yoga teacher he would say you know don't go to anybody's yoga class that doesn't smile you know if the teacher doesn't smile don't go to their class and that humility is the most important uh, quality that a yoga teacher can have. And so I was like, yes, these are the things that I believe in. These are the things I want to emulate. And so, and so, yeah, that's, I, I was very, very, very fortunate to find him early on. I imagine that if I had started, you know, happened to come across a different teacher early on and could have gone a different path, mm-hmm. but I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah. And that was, that was the energy with which I wanted to teach and when I started teaching in LA, I was apprenticing with many different teachers, all of whom informed the way I teach now, but Manju more than anything. And I didn't really see a place in LA that held to that ethos mm-hmm. so clearly. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create that. And I also wanted to create a space that was accessible financially because I just felt like Ashtanga yoga was becoming increasingly elitist. I still feel mm-hmm. that way. Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps things are changing, but I, 
I do feel that the practice can be pretty elitist and pretty uh, exclusive in terms I, of who can afford ob- to do I w- it. I would object to the word increasingly, given that it started out so elitist. It started out <laughs> But no, not originally. Originally, I don't think so. You know, originally, I don't think so. That back in the day in my store, I, I imagine... You know, when you're teaching the locals, like, well, they can't afford to. Maybe perhaps once the Western students coming in. Yes, I imagine. For anyone to to travel, anyone with the the means to travel to India for three months in the first place. Oh, absolutely. But extraordinarily privileged. But that, I agree with you. And I don't see that as the beginning of Ashtanga Yoga. That's not the beginning Mm -hmm. of Ashtanga Yoga. That is when Ashtanga Yoga. Yoga began to get popular. And by Ashtanga Yoga, I mean like these sequences that we learned, the methodology of practice, you know. Um, From my understanding, what Manjula has told me, you know, we're like working on this sequence way before any Westerners showed up. So at that time, you just teach to whoever whoever is there. (laughs) And and you don't teach in such a... The videos of, way. Of, of, uh, of Iyengar doing Ashtanga Yoga in the eight in the nineteen thirties. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this was all happening way before, and I don't, I don't. Perhaps if you know, you're talking about the caste system. Maybe you know, if you're opening it to only to Brahmins or something, there's some mm-hmm. elitism there for yeah. sure. Um, but uh, but I do think that the specifically the financial elitism came once the Westerners started. Mm-hmm. you know because then yes there are these privileged people are able to practice and then i also feel like this is a weird going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of you know what what is the aim of practice are we practicing five hours a day or are we practicing just enough so that we feel good for the rest of our day there's this weird kind of elitism that happens when if you're going and traveling every year to mysore that means for whatever reason you have the time or however you get there you have the time the means the resources to do that mm-hmm. and then you come back and you have become a teacher you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you start teaching if you don't have a life outside of going to Mysore every year that is the perspective from which you're going to teach and what mm-hmm. qualifies you to teach an average student then i don't really don't understand that that always really boggled my mind like what qualifies you to teach a mother of two young children when your whole experience has been this other thing, you know. I I agree with that completely. Yeah. When I when I have encouraged young teachers to work, I've I've so much of their their mentality is about like in Mysore and Gokulam the four thirty a.m. class and like teaching mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of student. Yeah. But I would say right. to them like you have to take a real hard look at the four thirty p.m. class. Because that's that's your student base when you get home is, you know, overweight dads and moms screwing around Mm -hmm. and, you know, and just like have an hour away from their kids. And watch the way that Saraswati and Sharat teach that group. That's, you know, and they're comfortable. They know them. Everyone's laughing. Mm -hmm. Everyone's gossiping the whole time. Think about, think about that kind of teaching as being the norm because that's Mm -hmm. really what it's like. Is you're teaching a group of people that all know you and speak your own language and right. um, they all have lives. And this is like the mm-hmm. 10% or the 5% of their life of that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, this is why I get very confused as to why this is not the prevailing understanding in our, mm-hmm. in our community. 
you know? I, yeah, I, I think I, there's like a confusing. couple things like going on there with, like you say, that that intense dedication. I mean, if you want to kind of follow that um, strict sort of uh, focused progression through the asana, through the sequence, mm-hmm. right? Where it's a very different approach than Manju saying, yeah, mm-hmm. go for it. You want to do more, go do more, <laughs> right? It's more like you have to do each of the asanas and like reach mm-hmm. these little bench points of these gatekeeper postures and be able to bind and be able to like mm-hmm. do all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, t- you know, I mean, even to do like the advanced sequences. Yeah. I mean, honestly, unless you're incredibly physically gifted, like mm-hmm. with hypermobility, flexibility, whatever, mm-hmm. it's going to take you two hours of practice of asana every day to like, put your body into the type of condition and shape that it needs to be in, in order to do those like crazy advanced asanas. And yes, not just I that you're you. going to have to regulate your time you're going to bed, the time you're waking yes, up, your diet. Yes, like yes. it is kind of the life of an ascetic where it is. Yeah. You but know, it's only, like you're it's, saying, it's not, not uh, at all reasonable to ask <laughs> your average person to do that. I would say it's a life of an aesthetic and it's, it totally makes sense if the goal in, in that specific mode of practice, if the goal is to achieve a certain type of aesthetic per- perfection in mm-hmm. the asanas, even yes, yes. whether it's primary, secondary, or, or advanced theory, yes, there are ways of practicing intermediate and advanced, as I'm sure you know, you know that are not about aesthetic perfection, but are about the energetic benefits that one gets from practicing intermediate series and advanced series. Because I really do believe that there are really, really clear benefits in those, uh, in those postures, you know, that are further along in primary series. So let's say like Kapotasana, if you're doing Kapotasana and your goal is to catch your heels, then maybe you need to warm up for 45 minutes before, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe An you do. Hour and 45. <laughs> if your goal, if your goal is to open the chest, find some nice sensation in the upper back and get like a little woof jolt of energy, you don't need 45 minutes to do that. You can take a shape of Kapotasana that gives you all those benefits, you know, mm. and even third series. Like I have students who will never put their leg behind their head, but they've been practicing for a decade. So am I going to say, no, you can never get any benefit from third series? No, I'm going to say do the arm balances because they sure. will give you the benefit, you know, mm-hmm. or do, yeah. what, do what's accessible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and I do, I think it's like my mind keeps going back to this, I guess, because we started the, the topic with culture, our conversation with cultural appropriation. But part of Indian culture is this sort of just like live your life like these are the dharma you know dharma in a yoga context means something very specific but in broader hindu culture indian culture the word dharma means like your responsibilities like what are the responsibilities in your Mm -hmm. life and so yes like yoga practice should be just one thing you do so that you can take care of your responsibilities whatever they may be whether they Mm -hmm. be your children your broader family, that is very big, you know, in India yeah. to take care of your broader family, mm-hmm. um, your career, your community. Yeah, yoga practice should um, should aid you in all these things. And 
I do, I do wish that we could bring that perspective a little more into the public conversation as, as Ashtangis. And I do think mm-hmm. there are more and more people doing that, that yeah. now, which is nice to see. Yeah, and I, I like this distinction between the aesthetic practitioner <laughs> versus the energetics of the practice, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I think we get inundated with the um, aesthetic, did I say that right? Aesthetic or aesthetic? Aesthetic. Thank you. Aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with the beauty, you know, um, of the postures and the images of the beautiful postures and the beautiful people Mm -hmm. doing the postures. Yes, yes. And and then we think, well, it has to look like that. And I'm not doing it correctly if it doesn't look like that. Um, That's why our shala has no, um, on our shala website, we have no images. Like we have no oh, really? images. It's an intentional yeah. choice. Wow. Yeah, it's very intentional choice. Um, now on our social media, you know, we'll post like pictures of people practicing at the shala and stuff, but it's usually, you know, very a broad range of yeah. bodies. And um, even the videos that I have, I have a little YouTube channel that was kind of like just happened by accident and, and it grew. Um, but everything that I post is very intentionally, including lots of different bodies practicing these shapes, because mm-hmm. I think we really need to change the narrative about what these shapes look like on different bodies. Yep. Yes, you know, I love and, that. and I think as teachers, we have a we have we need to take some responsibility for that. We need to mm-hmm. take some responsibility for how we market ourselves and, you know, and kind of promote this ideology that it has to look a certain way for yep. it to be yoga. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, they're like, I mean, if we're having like a super honest, frank conversation, there's also just some body types that are not mm-hmm. going to fit into that classical ideal kind of, of Ashtanga yoga, of you know, image or that Ashtanga yoga sort right. of very strict disciplined kind of, you have to bind Marichyasana A even, right? Yeah. <laughs> like right. let alone right. Kormasana or Supta Kormasana yeah. or Tijibasana or whatever. <laughs> you yeah. you mentioned hating the word spiritual, which I, I so oh. enjoy. It, <laughs> he doesn't like it either. I, I, can hate I don't it. like I, it. But I also hate <laughs> the word classical for the same reason. Oh. Because if you look at the word classical, you know, class, there's a, a set, and then ik is a set and then classical mm-hmm. is a set of sets really all it fucking means is your favorite <laughs> things <laughs> These are my favorite this is my favorite classical like this is the stuff right, that right. i like and i make i'm right. dictating right, 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 what right. the what things what should is... be in that group or not that's all i'm saying mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what classical right. means and so when someone says this is a classical way of looking at a yoga posture it means this is the way i like it yeah right 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 yeah. And I, shouldn't it shouldn't it instead be as teachers, shouldn't our responsibility be to the student to present, hey, this is the shape of the posture. How do you like it? Mm. You know, like how how do you like to make this shape? How does your body like to make this shape? How do the, you feel when you're in this shape? In agony. Uh, at least- <laughs> I love that. That's such yeah, a good so that's such a good turnaround. You can't make that shape anymore if you're in agony. That's right. <laughs> I know, I mean, that's right. Like, this kind of self reflection, I think, is something that I really try to try to model for the students. I get. I'm like um. You asked me. I I think this was somewhere. You asked me like what. Uh, maybe it was in our back and forth before we started this conversation. But like what 
what makes you a normie. Like I had yeah, said that yeah, I'm yeah. kind of like this a normie, okay, like quote, masquerading as a yoga teacher. You described yourself as a normie masquerading as a yeah. yoga teacher. Yeah. What does yeah, that mean? This is why. Because like I am not, I think sometimes people assume because I'm Indian, like I will be able to like quote the Upanishads to them or something. And I'm like, so not. And that, and I can't, like, I can't, will never be able to do that, even though I've read the Upanishads many times, I've read the Gita, all these things, right? But I will never be able to just, like, recite them. It's not how my brain works. And also, in terms of alignment, like, I, I, I couldn't, an anatomy, like, I couldn't tell you the bone. Like, I can't, I can't tell you, like, do this with this muscle and whatever. And so often the way that I teach when she, when students ask me like, what should I be doing here? That my, I, I teach through self-inquiry. Like, how does it feel? Do you have pain? When do you not have pain? How do you not have pain? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And yes, I've, I've accumulated some tips and tricks and techniques over my time that I've been practicing and I'm happy to share those with you. So here they are. And now you figure out how to heal yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you figure out the alignment that really works with your body. You figure out how to access this posture. And I'm here to help. And my hands are here to help you. But ultimately, this is your journey. Yeah, I love that. It's so yeah. empowering. It's so, it's so much about what yoga is, right? Creating independence, giving the student yeah. back to themselves. Autonomy. Yeah, mm-hmm. helping if, them be autonomous mm-hmm. over what, what mm-hmm. they're doing. If you're not creating yeah. independence, you're creating dependence. <laughs> Yes, and I think that Ashtanga, this you know, this way that many of us have practiced, does create dependence. It creates dependence on a teacher, mm-hmm. um, and a, and as we've seen over the last few years, of you know, many things come to light. It's create it creates a, a kind of a perverted power dynamic mm-hmm. in which lots of harmful things can occur. Mm-hmm. And so we want to, Abuses. I think we're now in a place where we can we can uh, really consciously move in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. I feel like women are leading the way in this. <laughs> yes, as, yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's time. It's yeah. time for us to, I mean, talk about, you know, I mean, Harmony, you're a mother. Um, um, you know, biologically, women experience just such a so many complex changes within the body. Totally. And so, to be a female practitioner over the course of even a few years, even if you, you know, if you're not getting pregnant, whatever, let's just leave that away for a second. Um, just as a woman going through the regular hormonal cycle, exactly, you know that the practice cannot remain the same. Exactly. Every day or every week or every month, as, yeah. you know, and then especially as you get pregnant, you, you, whoa, you really see that now, like, whoa, okay, things are changing. <laughs> and yeah. then you give birth and then, whoa, things are really different now. <laughs> yeah. And I have this, this whole other being that's now existing outside my body. So how am I going to practice yoga in a way that I can also be present for this other being? Yeah. It's a lot. And so I think women, because of these changes are a little more attuned to uh, sort of this, you know, perhaps an ethos of, of non-rigidity, you know, allowing the practice to be more fluid. And so it does make sense to me that women are the ones leading uh, this new, this yeah. new path forward. Mm-hmm. I yeah, wonder if sure. you could, you could talk more about uh, this phrase that you used, and, and you wrote about it extensively, the motherhood penalty. 
And I think you've made an yeah. effort to to tra- to reframe <laughs> that penalty into a yeah. blessing. Into yes. a positive. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, a positive. I just wrote a piece about this in um, Yoga Journal. Just just published this piece I wrote in anticipation of Mother's Day, which is this weekend. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. Happy, happy Mother's, Mother's Day. Day. <laughs> happy Mother's Day, moms. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know, the motherhood penalty, I, I think we all, most of us are familiar with the wage gap, you know, this like gender yes. wage gap that we hear a lot about, but we, I think what maybe some people don't know or may not know is that you, what's, what's now understood to be actually going on is that women tend to take work, take time off work when they become mothers, mm-hmm. when their kids are, are younger and either they choose not to go back into the workforce at all, or when they go back they're now having to start all over again and their income doesn't, doesn't stay at the place where, right. you know, it was before they yeah. took the time off. If, if anything, maybe it's gone down or whereas yeah. men typically, even if they're fathers tend to stay in the workforce. And so their wages continue to increase. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I experienced this at the yoga shala as well. Like, you know, this is what I called the motherhood penalty in that article is that now though I continue to teach, you know, now, even though I have two kids, I took maternity leave after each birth, but then I went back. I do have this experience where I'm not at the shala as much as I was before. Mm -hmm. I'm not teaching as many hours. Um, I have to leave early sometimes. I have to come late sometimes. I have to not show up sometimes because our childcare, you know, can't come in or whatever. There's all these things that can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to get the kids ready for school in the morning, you know, all these things. Like yeah. I have other responsibilities. So the shala no longer gets my undivided attention in the, in the way that it did before I became a mother. And, uh, and yes, I'm sure that I've, I've paid the penalty. I'm sure that there is a certain type of student who wants undivided attention, who is not going to come to my shala. Mm-hmm. And yet I feel that my, experience as a mother my understanding of what it means to live and love is so profoundly different than than when it was before I became a parent um yeah I I, you know we don't I don't like the word spiritual you're right Russell (laughs) but if we're going to if we're going to adopt it just for the sake of of this specific conversation um if anything in my life was a spiritual experience, it would be motherhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, I, I honestly can't say that it's the yoga practice, it's motherhood. Yeah. And so I am bringing now to the shala this felt sense of love and connection and sort of, I don't know if you experienced this when you became a mom, how many like, this kind of warped sense of time because you, you see your children and your parents and like mm. the cycle of life and death. I don't know. It's just sort of wild, you know, yeah. these are the things we talk about in yoga philosophy, but I didn't have any sort of understanding in and in, in a felt sense of them mm-hmm. until I became a mom. And so I'm bringing all this to the shala. And so for me, it's like definitely a blessing. It's a motherhood gift. And the students that are now coming to the shala understand that I'm not going to be there in the same way I was before, mm-hmm. but I'm bringing a depth of understanding that I didn't before. And specifically, you know, for, for other mothers that are coming into practice, 
um, I feel that I can be there for them in a much different way, you know, in a way that they perhaps wouldn't get from another teacher. Yeah. I love that. We, we need to like, I think all these changes like that you're talking about, all these discriminations against women are so, I mean, they're so embedded in the culture that we don't even see them or recognize them Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, and, and it's up to us as women to change it because the thing that drives me crazy more than anything (laughs) is that half the time it's the women not supporting the women (laughs) that is creating the problem. Yeah. And it's perpetuating these discriminations and that's not helping anyone and it's like we need to support each other in being mothers we need to celebrate each other in you know taking time to be with our kids when they need us we need to lift each other up and you know be a part of these communities where where you know women are leading them and yeah and you know not not to feel like something's being taken away from us as a woman if another woman is mm-hmm. being celebrated or lifted up or yeah. you know right, exactly is doing something wonderful or also like needs to take time away to well, for themselves yes, to think, do other things. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of this is as women I think this is really hard for a lot of women cuz I I don't know something about our culture but we tend towards like perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something really, really powerful about allowing our vulnerability and our imperfections to be seen, mm-hmm. um, even when it's uncomfortable. Like, yeah. you know, sometimes I come to the shell in a harried state because like the morning has been a shit show. Yeah. But that's just yeah. what happens with two kids. Sometimes the morning is a shit show and I'm screaming in the car on my way to the shower. Like this is a yogi. Yeah. But that's the reality of life. And I come in and I like look a mess and it's just, you know, <laughs> but way it happened that, that morning. my life in that moment, <laughs> that is the, you know, and I'm like having to leave and go into the, our little like changing closet to pump. I mean, this is just like to, to allow folks to see when things are not going perfectly. Yeah. I think that's actually a form of leadership and mm-hmm. it's yeah. really necessary for us to be able to get to this place where we can support each other. If we're trying to be perfect all the time and put on a front, then we really can't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. You you use this uh, phrase that I think uh, use the, the lean in phrase. It's not possible to lean in sometimes. And, I, I remember living in No, San you know what happens? You know what happens when you lean in? You fall. When I was living in yeah. San Francisco, uh, Cheryl Sandberg's book came out, Lean In, everyone was talking about it. Yeah. And then her husband died um, yeah. just yeah. out of the blue. Talk about vulnerability, imperfection. Mm. And a year yeah. later, she said, you know, actually it's it's... I misjudged and it is actually really difficult yeah. to lean in. Yeah. When yeah. Yeah. When when you don't have yeah. a lot of other supports in place. Yeah. You need a lot of support. And she and has I'm, hundreds you know, of millions of, of dollars of support. And she's still a <laughs> yeah. struggle. Well, yes, because you know, we have this illusion that money is somehow so gonna solve all our problems, but you can have all the help in the world, but the emotional support is, is that you can't buy that. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't buy emotional support. 
And when you're raising children, you don't just need help. You folding the laundry. You need emotional support. You know, yeah. you need you need to be feel like you're part of a village, a part of a tribe that's gonna hold you when you fall, because there are going to be times when you fall. I mean, I have to say motherhood is like a mirror, like it, it just exposes all of one's flaws. I don't know mm-hmm. if you feel that way. I feel that way. It's oh, like yeah. when when it's <laughs> When it's, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning and your baby won't fall asleep and you want to, like, throw something out the window, (laughs) you really get to know yourself, you know? (laughs) You get to know yourself. Yeah, the darkest part. And we're also trying to do in yoga practices, know ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, Not hide from those really dark places Mm because they exist in all of us. Those dark places exist. And so can we bring them to light? Can we, you know, love them? Yeah. Can we love those really dark places? I don't know. It's hard. I'm working it's, on it. Yeah. I know. I always <laughs> say to people, I'm not sure it's a very positive statement, but it's like, if you want to feel like a failure every day of your life, just become a yeah. parent and <laughs> you'll be reminded Absolutely. that like how much you yeah. have to work on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. I'm really, I'm really yeah. blessed with the child that we have that we're raising. Yeah, he's he's so... He's so tolerant of me. He, no matter how uh, how angry I get, he he will still come back for more cuddles and just Aww. like forgive oh, yeah. me my trespasses. And yeah. he keeps coming back. And I was like, this is really the kind of kid that I needed because yeah. you know if he was a kid like me that holds grudges. <laughs> You know, it would be, it would be, it would be a nightmare. Kids but he, really have an amazing capacity to forgive. Yeah. I yeah. feel like we, we can learn a lot from our children. I learn a lot from my children. They mm-hmm. really, they really are incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like little teachers, aren't they? They sure are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing too. I, you know, one day Jedi and I were, Russell was away on some, trip <laughs> and it was just me and Jediah for like 10 days and so I was like doing all the things you know mm-hmm. and I like lost my mind one day and I just was like screaming at him like going on a big rant about something I don't even remember what it was and then after at the end I like calmed down and I said I said I'm sorry I really mm-hmm. lost my cool but I just mm-hmm. needed to vent and like it just all came out <laughs> I'm so sorry mm-hmm. it was at you but you're here. Mm-hmm. And so it all came out on you. And he was like, he was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's okay. You know, it's like he sort of, and then he was also having a bad day. <laughs> so then he was like, but listen to what happened to me. And then he started screaming at me about his oh, day, <laughs> about like some kid so that like was, yeah. you know, doing all these things and driving him crazy all day. And, you know, and he was like really yelling and like so much emotion. He was like crying, mm-hmm. yelling, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I said, I said, see, it feels good to just like let it out sometimes, mm-hmm. right? It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to, yeah. I don't to just think, feel these things. I don't think Patanjali yeah. recommends that, actually. <laughs> it was like scream therapy. <laughs> but then like the next day, it was so interesting because he said to me, he said, you know, mom, it felt really good to just like mm-hmm. let out my emotions yesterday. Thanks. And I'm yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we... that's awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, that's, that's modeling for your kid and, and, and yeah, yeah he's going to take that lesson with him. Unintentional um, modeling. <laughs> but yes. Well, isn't, 
I think most modeling is unintentional. Yes. Like we have, we have, we have these kind of notions about, you know, how we're behaving and how yes. not in front of our kids or our students, you know, like what are they going to pick up? But really what they pick up on are the moments between the moments, yeah. you know, so when we're true. not, when we're not thinking about what we're doing, when we're just being who we yeah. are. Yeah, that's that's that, you know so true. <laughs> something that, <laughs> a scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> something that um, yeah. my mom, something my mom said to me a lot when she was raising me and 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 Dave um, was to think about, you know, that she was, she, she would say, you know, I'm trying to raise a, a man. I'm not just taking care of a boy. I'm trying to raise what mm-hmm. a kind of man that I want to mm-hmm. that I want to see. And I I try to I I try to to take that same approach with Jedi. And I think about like, you know, I don't want him to, you know, take advantage of his, of his mother's care. I want him to not be entitled. I want him to be, to have a, a big part of the house as far as taking care of the house and cleaning. Mm -hmm. I want to, want him to see me cooking. I want to teach him how to cook. Um, I was having a a conversation with him yesterday uh, about, uh, a woman's a woman's right to choose, a woman's right mm. to have autonomy over her body, and um, I, I'm, you know, I'm emotional about it. I think a lot of our listeners are are also thinking about this, and and it's emotional um, thinking about, uh, you know, over fifty percent of American society being treated as a second class citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were we were talking about. It. I said, well. You know, Dad, I do. I do think a, you know, a, a husband should have, you know, some say in, you know, whether she gets in a, she can have an abortion or not. And I said, well, okay, well, let's talk about like the legality of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so what does some say mean? Like, does some say that a judge can dictate, or mm-hmm. you know, what? How much information does a judge need before she can get an abortion? He said, oh no, fuck that. It's it's just her right to choose, Dad. I'm not. It's too complicated. <laughs> I said okay, and um, that's too much. It's just her, it's just up to her. I said okay. Well, in, another thing we were talking about was like, um, you know, uh, you know, we're vegetarian, and you know, we're we practice nonviolence, and it's like, you know, you know how you know how how much um, you know, how violent of, of an act is it? You know, we started talking about miscarriages. We started talking about all of this mm. stuff. And it's it's a great conversation to have with a 10-year-old, actually. And I would encourage people <laughs> to have these conversations because it's yeah. super interesting. Um, I just wanted to know if you had any any thoughts on on this. And wow, it's a lot. <laughs> like, dropping us in there in the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about abortion. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, you're from Michigan. There are, there are trigger laws in in Michigan. They're going to start to take forth. Maybe you can talk about that. You can talk about uh, Hindutva and, and Indian conservatism. You know, choose a topic and jump in. <laughs> Um, well, it's complex. First of all, I think it's really, really awesome that you talk about this with your kids. Um, I'm often really impressed by um, my kid. You know, my oldest kid is only four. So obviously I'm not talking to her about this yet. But no. I'm always I'm pretty impressed by when we do talk to her about things like in a grown like we, we try to treat her like a little grown up. Yeah. Except, you know, also acknowledge that she's four. 
but I really actually do try to get her input on some stuff from time to time. And I'm consistently amazed by like her, her clear thinking. Cause yeah. I think sometimes we just, we just put too, you know, we're just too complex about stuff and 100%. the answers, answers are more simple than we realize. But, um, it's very interesting, um, conflict you know that you bring up about the nonviolence and mm-hmm. how that relates to a fetus and um, I, I don't have the the funny thing is that the abortion issue has become kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning mm-hmm. of the conversation it's become this red blue issue yeah. you know kind of you're on one side or you're on the other side and there's no nuance when in fact i think based on the polling that i've read the vast majority of americans are somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. they do not want kind of you know they don't want to live in a world in which a woman can uh, abort the child at any time you know even like up till you know late term but they also understand that there are conditions in which a a woman may not want to go through the pregnancy I think the vast majority of Americans actually are in the middle Mm -hmm. which is interesting because we don't get that sense uh, Mm -hmm. from the media Um, but in terms of the nonviolence, I think that Oh, it's tricky uh, because by existing, by being living beings, we have to kill. Like, mm-hmm. There's just no getting around that, right? Yeah. Like our life is Something taking does. other life. Even if we're vegetarian, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like our life is taking other life. Mm-hmm. And I personally am not, a, I'm not a vegetarian. I was for many years. And then it became very, my body began to tell me like this isn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I do, I am... I eat many things and some of those things are animals, you yeah. know, like dead animals. Like that's part of what I eat. Um, and, and we, we know we try to be very conscious about what we're eating, but I think we, I, that's a whole nother topic, but I share that. It's kind of as an insight into the fact that death is a part of life. Like mm-hmm. we cannot escape all violence. We cannot escape all harm just because we want to. We exist, mm-hmm. and so we will cause violence and we will cause harm. And historically speaking, from an anthropological perspective, and even beyond that, um, if we look at other species, mothers, human mothers and animal mothers, um, have always found ways to terminate pregnancies when they feel that that child is not going to survive or not going to have mm-hmm. a, a great likelihood of survival. Mm-hmm. So there's this book, um, I don't know if you know it, uh, by an author named Sarah Blaffer Hardy. I think that's how you pronounce it, something like that. And she wrote a book called Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. It's basically a treatise on motherhood from like birds to mammals all the way to humans. And there is a, there are some striking commonalities and one of them is that the mother and the child are not in this like synchronous, harmonious, <laughs> you know, like bond from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's actually a bit of a fight. Yeah. And any woman who's been pregnant knows this, you mm-hmm. know, that the body is fighting the fact that there's a foreign being inside of it. And at the same time, recognizing that it has to nourish this foreign being. So the child is its own entity from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the mother tends to take stock of its surroundings and make some kind of calculations about is this child going to have a good likelihood of survival Mm -hmm. and if not there are a lot of animals who have ways of terminating their pregnancies Mm 
Mm. And and as humans, we have done that. We have we have had the autonomy to terminate pregnancies when we feel that we need to. And of course, biologically speaking, that's kind of what a miscarriage, some miscarriage, yeah. you know, can be a way of 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 the biology just kind of working itself out and saying this this fetus does not have a high likelihood of survival. So yeah. so the scariest thing to me about you know the potential for abortion now to be you know illegal across the country or be criminalized is like we are taking away a fundamental autonomy that women have had yeah forever. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is though we're not actually taking it away. We're just saying you have to go underground. That's yeah. what we're saying. You know, yeah. you have because to go the underground. And and that's of abortions will stay the same. And that's so dangerous. That's, that's so dangerous. And that's saying that I don't give a shit about women's lives. That's what and that kind of, Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's it's what we were talking about earlier in terms of how do we actually create behavioral change? If we want less abortions, which um actually I can't speak with authority or about like what the rate of abortions has been. I was going to the, say that I think they've gone down, but the, I don't actually know. The for rate sure. of abortions, whether they're they're criminalized or legal, stay the same mm-hmm. per capita historically. Yeah, that I understand, but I'm wondering like over history. For example, teenage pregnancy mm-hmm. has gone down significantly over the last like 20 years. Right. I was oh, wondering right, right. like if abortion has followed that path. I'm, I don't actually know. Um but uh, what I was saying is that if we want, if, if, if there are people in our society who believe that abortion is a wrong and they would like to discourage women from aborting their fetuses, then behavioral change comes about by offering other alternatives, you know, mm-hmm. by, 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 by making sure that woman, if she is on the precipice, if she's not sure, like, I don't know if I have the resources to raise the child. I don't know if I have the support I need to raise the child. Then how can we offer amply yes. that, those resources and that support? Totally. That's yeah. the way to try to, to try to get that woman to not abort that child. Yeah. Not by saying you're wrong and you're bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't do it. Like, Slut shaming. It doesn't work. Yeah. It's just ineffective. You know, it's just ineffective. Yeah, because it's not a solution. It's not solution oriented. It's not like solving mm. any problems. It's just saying don't do that. It's not giving <laughs> giving any as you say like better mm-hmm. things to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like when you're raising children, right? You just say no, don't do that. Yeah. I mean, the kids are just yeah, going to yeah, go right yeah. back and do it <laughs> or like, you know, be yeah. like, "Well, and you're like, come do this yeah. with me. <laughs> you know, like yeah, redirect. Exactly, exactly. Redirection. Redirect. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, it, it yeah. brings me back to like, I always say this to Russell about, you know, American culture in particular, because in Canada, if you, I mean, I didn't get it because I worked for myself. So, but if you work for a company, you get a year's worth of maternity leave. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I know, and that can also be like six, you know, you can split that up even between the mother right. and the father. Right. So, mm-hmm. but as a family, um, you would get, yeah. you know, or two mothers mm-hmm. or two fathers, you know, you mm-hmm. would get a yeah. year together. And, um, and I always think it's just so, such a discrimination against women and against mm-hmm. mothers in particular, that you yeah. only get six weeks worth of maternity leave. I'm like, a baby's not even yeah. three months old. Like, oh my gosh, no. they're so yeah. small. 
it's an indictment. It's pretty appalling how little how little support. Yeah. Yeah. That, that and then, so exactly again, it goes back to that 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 support, right? Like, mm-hmm. like let's value women, let's value mothers, and create the kind of society, the kind of culture where we're supporting them. You know, whether it's financially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's through cultural norms, whatever, you know, women need to be mothers, because it's such an important job. And, you know, I know in India, it's valued so much. Like when you become a mother in India, it's like your status in society, like skyrockets (laughs) to like number one, you know? It's yeah, like... I don't know, Harmony. That that may be a very idealized vision of India that you have. I don't know. <laughs> India is also a pretty, pretty patriarchal society. It is true, and, and the mothers, the my uh, my perception or what I've seen is mm-hmm. that yes, the mothers rule the roost at home. The <laughs> yeah. outside, it's still it's still often the men yes. that are you know that are um, leading the way. But those things are changing too. Yeah, I mean, not so much as far as maybe like, uh, you know, actually like having like status that way. But I know for me, when I was there before I was a mother, you know, always it was very, I was treated very differently. I mean, also being a foreigner with blonde hair, basically, people thought I was just a (laughs) prostitute. So (laughs) (laughs) that was sort of the main energy (laughs) directed towards me. But as soon as I had my son in India, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, you're a mother, we're going to, you know, watch out for you, but but we're going to take care of your, your son, we're going to make sure everything's, you know. um, (laughs) Because you you did what you're supposed to do. You got it, you went and had a family, you know, (laughs) we're talking about Indian culture, you had the family, okay, sure, you practice yoga, whatever, but okay, now, you actually did what Indian culture wants you to do, and Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's such a also such a like. I mean, we could go on and on with this, right? Because that must be also like a bit of a burden too for women in India to have to have that dharma or have that expectation Mm -hmm. put on them. Because not all Indian women are going to want to have children or can have children, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's complex. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do have to hop off pretty yes. soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my baby is going to be calling for me. <laughs> Thank you so much. And tell everyone so where they can find you in L.A. Because I think oh, you've, yeah. out, you've outlasted all the other teachers and shalas in L.A. I think it's true. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm going to do a little happy dance about I think that. You I, I feel very... I really feel very proud of our of our little shala yeah. community. It's pretty awesome. And yeah, so we are around. We're practicing in person in West LA. You can go to yogashalawest.com and find out more about us. Or, you know, if you're here, come visit. Yeah. Love to see you. Yeah, beautiful. Well, one day when we make okay, it to LA, so we'll, come, we'll come visit with you. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking